We're continuing right now in our series of messages from the Gospel of John here in the second half where Jesus kind of focuses his attention on his disciples and the, the dominant theme in these final chapters is that we are to abide in him and he in us. And uh, this connection, this relationship is really the heart of the Gospel. So we're continuing to tease out things about that. Now, you've probably heard me say this before, and some of you might be shocked to hear me say it, but I do not believe that the ultimate goal of human existence is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I know the Westminster Confession says that. I actually believe that the ultimate goal of human existence is to love God and each other forever. But, please don't misunderstand me, I don't think that the glory of God is a small issue. I think it's of supreme importance, not least of all because it is a key part of our own redemption story. So let's see what Jesus had to say about the glory of God and eternal life. We are in John chapter 17. We'll be looking at the first eight verses, and I've titled the message today, Glory and Eternal Life. Let's get right into it. Verse 1. Jesus said these things, and lifting his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you. So Jesus, had, Jesus said these things. Obviously, this is referring to what we just finished talking about last week, where Jesus has been warning his disciples of the hatred of the world that's coming and of the tribulations and the trials and the, the suffering that is coming upon them. And also, he's told them about their own failures, how all of them are going to scatter and leave him alone, although he is never alone. The Father is always with him. And uh, all these distressing words he's been telling them, and yet he says, I'm telling you all of this so that my peace may be with you. And he tells them uh, that in this world we're going to be suffering. We are going to face tribulation. But take courage. I have conquered the world. So those are the things he has just finished saying to the disciples. And after this challenge to face the trials and tribulations of this life with our eyes fixed on Jesus and participating in him in this victory over the cosmos, uh, after he says all of this, he lifts his eyes to heaven and begins to pray. We're told often in the Gospels that Jesus prayed. He's praying all the time. He's going off alone at night and uh, praying and uh, many uh, instances like that in the Gospels. But there are very few instances in the Gospels where the Gospel writer actually recorded the prayer itself for us. This is one of those few instances. Chapter 17 is a long prayer of Jesus to the Father. And uh, I'm very grateful to John for remembering and putting on paper this prayer of Jesus, this final night uh, before his crucifixion. And he opens the prayer with what is perhaps, I have decided, the most significant theological word in the Gospel of John. It occurs over a hundred times in reference to God, Father. 
He opens the prayer addressing God as Father, and he says, the hour has come. Jesus has been talking his whole ministry long about the purposefulness of his coming into the world. He says, the Father has sent me, the Son, into the world, and I have a task to complete. His whole life, he was absolutely driven by the the, the task that the Father had sent him into the world to accomplish. And he, he talks to the Father, and he knows that the moment, the culminating moment in this task is about to take place. It's going to be just a few hours, and he will be hanging on that cross. A few hours more, and he will be in a grave. Not too many hours longer, and he will be rising from the grave. It's all coming. The the moment of culmination of the task he has come to perform has arrived. And what does he ask the Father? He says, glorify your Son. I wonder what he meant by that. I can think of at least two things that, that might be part of what he had in mind. Maybe he knows the weight that is building on his soul as he contemplates the cross. And I'm convinced that Jesus was not so concerned about the physical pain. Thousands of people have died by crucifixion. It's not an inhuman thing. It's not something that nobody has ever gone through. Jesus isn't worried so much about that as what's going to happen with his soul when he who knew no sin is made to be sin. When the full wrath of Almighty God against all sin throughout all eras of human history and the existence of the cosmos is extinguished on his soul. And he will shudder at the very thought of it because Jesus, being God, knows what that's going to mean. You and I can only speculate. He knew exactly. And maybe he's thinking of the moment that's coming in just a few hours when he's going to be sweating drops of blood in the garden and saying, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. And maybe he's asking the Father, when that moment comes, give me the strength to stay the course. If that's what he means, the Father definitely came through because Jesus stayed the course. He completed the task. Maybe he's thinking of what's going to come after the crucifixion is accomplished. He's going to die. This isn't some faux death. This isn't swooning. This isn't Jesus fainting and then his body being taken off the cross. No, this is death. His heart stopped beating. There was no longer any brain activity in his brain. The breath of life left him. Jesus, having taken on fully the limitations you and I know, having become flesh, not just put on a flesh suit, but having become flesh, he will face death the way you and I have to face it. Looking to God and uh, hoping in faith that the Father will do what he has promised. And Jesus knows that he will, ne- he will need the Father to bring him back to life. The Father is going to glorify him not only by st- 
steeling his resolve so that he goes to the cross, but also by culminating and announcing to the world that the victory over sin and death has been utterly and eternally accomplished by raising him immortal in glory from the grave. Glorify your son. We may think then that Jesus uh, wants all the glory for himself. He's, after all, he's going to save the world. And he rightly deserves to receive all the glory eternally forever from all creation. Anything that exists and breathes and can speak uh, praise should praise him forever. But notice what he says. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Jesus did not want the glory for himself. He wanted God the Father to glorify God the Son, to glorify him in his crucifixion and resurrection so that he could immediately point out to the world, this is how much the Father loves you. Enough to send me to die for you. And this was the Father's initiative. The plan of redemption came from the Father's heart who sent me into the cosmos to save it. And Jesus wants all of this to result in the Father receiving the glory that he alone deserves. We see within God this mutual deference that is eternally a part of who God is. Three persons in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and this constant giving of glory one to the other. The Father gives glory to the Son, making him the Savior of the world, the accomplisher of redemption, and the Son immediately wants to return that glory to the Father whose idea it was to send him into the world. I contrast that with how we go about ministry sometimes. Or the Christian life. Sometimes we are glory hounds. We want attention. We want validation. We want the masses to be uh, uh, adoring everything we do and say and responding favorably to everything about us. And we think uh, if we uh, have a lot of glory and there are a lot of people paying attention, then that means we can do a lot more good and we can uh, impact the world much more powerfully. And the dream of many ministers is to pastor a mega church so that they can have this tremendous influence over the world. It's interesting to me that the Savior of the world wanted glory only so that he could give it right back to the Father. I think our Christian life, our Christian church for 2,000 years has been plagued by Christians who have not followed this pattern of behavior, who have loved glory and when it has come to them have hoarded it for themselves and accumulated glory for themselves and rather than immediately funneling all of that devotion to the only worthy object of human devotion, God the Father who sent the Son to save the world, have actually treasured that devotion for themselves. And we see, I'm so sick of it. I'm bored with it. The stories of scandal that happen over and over and over again. And it's always the same. They're not even inventive about it. They fall into sexual abuse, uh, financial abuse, and abuse of power. Because they've 
accumulated glory for themselves that didn't belong to them. Jesus shows us how this circle of glory is meant to work. That all the glory the Father brings to bear in our lives and through our lives, even through the things we are doing in obedience to Him, it is the work of the Father that is happening. And the Father alone deserves glory and credit for it. Jesus relied on the Father to be glorified. And in turn, He used that glory to glorify the Father. Let me ask you. Is glory something you crave for yourself or something you are eager to deliver to God? When people look at you, are they drawn to you or are they pointed to God? Let's keep reading verse 2 and 3. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, that he may give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. Now this is eternal life, that they should know you, the only true God, and the one whom you have sent, Jesus Christ. So Jesus asked to be glorified so that he may in turn glorify the Father. And what is all this glorification about? There's actually something being accomplished in this glory. What Jesus is accomplishing in his death on the cross is he is purchasing back from the power of sin and death creation. When we sin, when we introduce sin into the world and sin spread throughout the world, God already told us what sin does. It kills. And it destroys. And the world has been under the power of sin. And rightfully so. Because the wages of sin are death. There's no other payment for sin. There is no other consequence for sin than destruction and death. It cannot do anything but that. God had to intervene spectacularly to break creation free from the power and authority of sin and death over it. And that is what Jesus is about to accomplish on the cross. Jesus talks about it as though it's already happened. You have given him authority over all flesh. You know, when Jesus rises from the grave and demonstrates that he has accomplished the defeat of sin and death, he rises and is given all authority in heaven and on earth. He is given authority over everything because it no longer belongs to sin. That debt is paid. And now everything belongs only to Jesus. He has purchased it and is the promised King of kings and Lord of lords, the ruler of creation. The Father has given Jesus authority over all flesh. That's a Hebrew idiom to describe all humankind. And by extension, all living things that exist in all of creation. Why did the Father want to glorify the Son? Not just so he could reestablish himself as ruler over creation, but so that he may give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. I want you to notice this about Jesus. Even though Jesus is the one dying on the cross to redeem creation, even though he's the one doing it, he still doesn't claim the people who come to faith as his own. 
They belong to the Father because it was the Father who sent him into the world to save. So even the the disciples Jesus has, he says, I only have them because you, Father, have given them to me. Again, think about how we do ministry. When we lead someone to Christ, sometimes we have a sense of ownership. When we lead a ministry, we think somehow that belongs to me. It does not. It belongs to the Father who loved the world enough to send the Son into the world. And I am not saving the world. God is. And I get to be a participant in this, but I don't have ownership. Jesus says that the reason he's dying on the cross, the reason he's being glorified in this way so that he can receive authority over all flesh is so that he can actually extend eternal life as a gift. If he didn't die on the cross, he couldn't do that. Sin had to be paid for. So what exactly is this eternal life he's talking about? Thankfully, Jesus saw fit to tell us. This is eternal life. You want to know what it is? That they should know you, the only true God. And the one whom you have sent, Jesus Christ. There's a lot of speculation. There are world religions. There are whole philosophical systems developed to answer this question, what is eternal life? Some people think it's a matter of merit. If you work hard enough and you're good enough and you build up enough goodness, then you somehow, uh, by your own efforts, have gained for yourself eternal life. Somehow, uh, it, it is uh, an inevitable consequence of your goodness and effort. Or some think of it uh, not as something earned, but, well, I guess earned, but uh, you, you devote yourself to meditation and introspection and you transcend the, the smaller things of life and you reach this deep level of uh, consciousness and awareness and become enlightened, that's the term used, and then you kind of transcend and become participant in eternal life. You know, Jesus said eternal life has nothing to do with any of that. That is not eternal life. I don't know what it is, but it's not eternal life. Perhaps a waste of time is what I would call it. What is eternal life? It is a relationship. It is to know God, not just whatever we choose to call God, and this whole thing, you know, all gods, everyone's talking about the same thing, just call it whatever you want. All the paths lead to the top of the same mountain. No, there are a bunch of mountains out there. There are a bunch of gods out there. And Jesus says the only way to have eternal life is to know the only true God. Why does he say that? Because there are a lot of fake gods. There's only one true God. We don't, we don't have to know just some God we philosophize about. We have to know the God who sent the Son into the world to save the world. There's only that one God. Everything else is a fabrication. It isn't just believing in some force or some power. 
It is, and it's not just belief. It is coming to know in the biblical sense, in the relational sense, in the way I say, I know my wife. Eternal life is a relationship. Not just with any God, not just with the concept of divinity. A relationship with the one God who sent the Son into the world, Jesus Christ, to save the world. There is only one God, and that God is Redeemer God. And that is the God that to know him is to know eternal life because eternal life is something he will only give to us in himself. He's not going to deal out eternal life apart from himself because only God has eternal life. And he wants to share it fully with us. Our only way to participate in eternal life is to participate in him. Thus, the instruction to abide in him and he in us. Eternal life is a relationship. Jesus died to rescue all flesh from the power of sin so that he could offer eternal life to any who will enter into a relationship of knowing and being known by God. How has your knowing and being known by God been life eternal for you? Let's keep reading verse 4. I glorified you on earth, completing the work that you have given me to do. And now glorify me with yourself, Father, with the glory which I had with you before the cosmos came to be. Jesus says, everything I've done here on earth has been to glorify you, Father. I have pointed people to you. Think about this. Jesus in his ministry never claimed that he was the source of things. He said, I am only sharing with you the words that the Father has given me to share. I am only doing among you the works that the Father has given me to do. In everything about his ministry, even though Jesus was God himself, He gave glory to the Father. You know, we are not God. If anyone has a reason to give all glory to the Father, it's us. But Jesus, who could have claimed glory for himself, refused to and gave it to the Father. I have glorified you on earth. I have completed the work that you have given me to do. Jesus knew the Father had sent him to do something. And he faithfully did every bit of it, every step of the way. In John's gospel, he will tell us the final words Jesus will speak from the cross. It is finished. The work is done. Jesus knows he's going to complete the task given to him. And he again asks the Father, glorify me. And this time he adds a different aspect to it. Glorify me with yourself, Father. With the glory which I had with you before the cosmos came to be. Before anything that exists existed, 
Jesus was already sharing the glory of the Father because that is the eternal nature of triune God. He is Father, Son, and Spirit eternally. And eternally they have shared in the full glory of the Godhead. And Jesus says, I set that glory aside temporarily in the days of my life here on earth in the flesh because it had to be a human on that cross to redeem humankind. I emptied myself of glory and I'm going to the grave and Father, I'm going to have to depend on you to bring it all right back. I'm going to have to depend on you to be restored to the full glory I had before the incarnation. And Jesus makes it clear that he is eternal God. Not just because he talks about having shared in the glory of the Father since before creation even began. But there are things God communicated to us through the Old Testament that make it clear that Jesus has to be God. In Isaiah 42, 8, God says this, I am Yahweh, that is my name, my glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. A little further on in chapter 48, when uh, God is talking to the prophet about uh, how he has not destroyed Israel despite her sin and her uh, rejection of him, he says this in verse uh, 11 of chapter 48, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So if God has said that he's not giving his glory to anybody else, and Jesus says, I shared in your glory before the cosmos began. Restore me fully to that once I've completed the task you gave me. He's clearly indicating that he is God. And God is bringing glory uh, through all that's happening in Jesus' death and resurrection. Let me ask you about this. We're talking about the glory of God. How has Jesus shared with you the eternal glory of God? Let's continue verse 6. I have revealed your name to the people whom you gave to me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your message. Now they have come to know that all the things you have given to me are from you, because I have given to them the words which you gave to me, and they have received them and have come to know truly that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Jesus says, I've revealed your name to the people. And again, Jesus talks about his disciples, not as his people, but as the people the Father has given to him. The people you gave to me out of this world, I have revealed your name to them. That idea of revealing the name is revealing the very nature of who he really is. And guess what? The word Jesus uses throughout the Gospel of John more than any other word to describe God is Father. We kind of take it for granted today. We're 2,000 years into this. And we know that God loves us as a Father because we know the story of God the Father who sent His only 
beloved son into the world to redeem the world by dying on a cross. And that, that shares with us the reality of his heart. God loves us as a father enough to give the most precious thing he has to purchase us back from sin and death and to rescue us for himself, to share life eternally with us. So uh, Jesus revealed to us that God is not just omnipotent, holy God, punisher of the wicked and rewarder of righteousness, but that he is loving father. We kind of take that for granted 2,000 years into it. We like to think of God as Father. We even, uh, today in this day and age, even people who don't know God kind of have this assumption that God owes them something because God's supposed to treat me like his child. Even if I am uh, sinful and rebellious and stubborn and do everything my way and want nothing to do with him, I still expect God to treat me like a loving father. Somehow we've really got that, I think. That wasn't always the way. Before Jesus, the Jews didn't really think of God as father, not maybe in a, a sense of father of the nation of Israel, but not my father. Not father to be known intimately and personally. Jesus revealed that to us. He says that those who have come to him as disciples, they were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your message. Jesus is saying what I've communicated to them is not my message. It is your message that they have received. They have come to know that all the things you have given to me are from you. Because I have given to them the words which you gave to me. They've received them. They've come to know truly that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. You know the reason the disciples received the message of the Father and kept it? Is that they discovered more than just the words of the message. They encountered the God who was speaking the message. And when they encountered God in this message, they opened their lives up to it and found that God was doing the works that only God can do in a human life. And was speaking the words that only God speaks. With the authority that only God himself carries. An authority that sinks into the bones of your soul and says, this is true. Why do people believe the Bible is the Word of God? I'll tell you, it's not because it's the most glorious piece of literature ever written, although I believe it is. It's not because it represents the most beautiful ethic ever written on, in human words, but even though I believe it does. You know why people believe the Bible is the Word of God? Because when they hear the message contained in the Bible and they open themselves up to it, God does a work in their lives that only God could do. God works. And his message is uh, the message that opens us up to the activity of God. And it is because of that that we come to know truly the way the disciples in Jesus' day came to know truly that Jesus really is God. Come from the Father to redeem us. And I know it because he has redeemed me. 
because he has given me the gift of eternal life because this relationship that is eternal life has begun and there's no other way to explain what is happening in my soul than God because of that I come to the Bible in faith because the the God that the Bible tells me about is actually at work in my life How has God worked through the gospel message to provide a foundation for your faith in Jesus as Savior and God? You may have heard before that God is glorious. But how do we know this about him? One of the most obvious evidences is Jesus. God the Father looked upon a world that we had ruined by selfish arrogance. He saw creation under the power of sin with no other option, sealed for destruction. And rather than be repulsed, he loved us. So much did he love us that he asked God the Son to become a man, to tell the world that he loves us, and to willingly accept upon himself the payment for the sins of the world. Only in this way could creation be free from sin's power, free to live forever. Here is where God's glory becomes great news to us. If we receive this message, this invitation to be rescued, we can know this glorious God. And in knowing Him, we will know life forever. To know this glorious God is to live, and we may do so for all time. What a glorious God. My question to you is, do you know Him? I like to always have a time of response at the end of a message because God's Word is meant to be a conversation. God is talking to us by His Word and He wants to hear back from us. And I think it's important in our worship to have the opportunity to respond to whatever God is saying to us. If you are here today and you don't know the God I'm talking about, you have not entered into this eternal life, in this relationship with Him, I want to ask you today to have the courage to put your faith in Jesus, surrender your future and eternity to Him, and begin life eternal today. If that's you this morning, we're going to have some time now and people uh, that are going to be able to help you uh, with asking Jesus to uh, become your Savior and Lord. I'd like, uh, like to ask you to stand. And we're doing things a little differently. We've set up some partitions in the back so that there's a little bit more privacy. And the people who are going to be back there to help you will be on either side at the back. During this song that we're about to sing, uh, if you need to make any kind of a commitment to Christ, please go to the back and uh, you'll have a little bit of privacy there and you can talk with people who are just 
people like you and me that know Jesus and want to encourage you and pray with you. Uh, take advantage of this. Maybe you need prayer for something. Maybe you already know Jesus and there's just something that he's asking you to commit to with him today. Whatever God's laid on your heart, do that. We have those at the back ready to receive you. And also the altar is open. If you just need to come here and kneel and pray, this is your time to do so as well. But let's respond to what God has said to us by his word today. Come while we sing.